Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Dr. David Sanger. Dr. Sanger is a cardiologist, ultramarathon runner, and someone who practices intermittent fasting and a low-carbohydrate approach with his nutrition. He joined the show to discuss cardiovascular health and complications related to endurance training. So one thing that has become more of a story over the last few years is cardiovascular health when it comes to endurance activity. So I think most people's intuition leads them towards endurance training or exercise in general is heart healthy and they would be correct. But there are some interesting details that are worth noting and considering as you kind of structure your training and racing habits potentially. So I wanted to talk to Dr. David Sanger about those specific things and find out exactly what maybe that means and see if maybe there's some difference that we need to be aware of as endurance athletes in terms of kind of what shows up on maybe some sort of cardiovascular screening. And we got it all sorts of stuff along those lines, as well as other things just related to cardiovascular health. So this is a fun one to do. Before I get rolling with Dr. Sanger, just a quick reminder that I do host a raffle with the Human Performance Outliers podcast that is for a free consultation with me, a 30-minute consultation. So the way that one works is if you want to enter the raffle, all you have to do is share a show that you enjoyed on social media and tag me. Just make sure you tag me or send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com showing that you shared a post so that I know to enter you in the raffle. You can do that on any of the social media platforms. Most people do it on Instagram. It's pretty easy to share on a story. So they can share it from their phone app on whatever device they're listening to. Or if I make a reel or a post or something about the show, they can reshare that. And it just tends to be an easier spot maybe to do it. But um, anything's an option and I do appreciate it. it helps me grow the show and introduce the episodes that you enjoy to other listeners. So I appreciate everyone who's done that so far. We will be announcing the next raffle winner at the beginning of the next month. So that'd be early November. It just announced the September winner uh, at the beginning of October. So that is always available and it is worth noting. You can enter multiple times. So if you find that you're enjoying more than one episode or you want to share an episode on multiple platforms or something like that, uh, feel free to do it. I'll enter you into the raffle each time you do that. So the more times you share, the more opportunities or the higher your percentage, I guess, goes to win that 30 minute consultation. All right. Other ways to support the show, you can just head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. That is the podcast landing page. It has the full catalog of all the episodes, all the details, show notes, now transcripts of all the shows too. So you can either read the entire show if you want, or use that to kind of search for something that you heard, but don't remember exactly where it was in the show. It can be helpful for that. On that page is also the access to the show's Patreon page, which does give you early release, meaning when I get done recording these episodes, whether they're guest or solo, I'll put them up on there before the actual release date so you can get a hold of them right away. And they also come intro ad-free, so you get right to it. You don't have to listen to anything other than the show and start that journey early. So if you want to join the show Patreon page, greatly appreciate that. And you can access that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. I've been really fortunate this year that Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones have been supporters of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I want to keep these intros short, so I have a thorough description of how I use both of those products at the end of the show. So if you're interested in hearing my protocol on how I came to choosing them, 
that is there at the end. So just stick around after the interview. For now, just a few announcements relative to those brands. Element Electrolytes does have a free sample pack offering for human performance outliers listeners. You can access that by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Put that forward slash HPO in there. You'll let them know that you came from here and you'll get offered that free sample pack with your first purchase. And then that sample pack will let you try a bunch of their different flavors, including citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, and raw and flavored. Delta G Ketones, they have the original exogenous ketone. They are the ones that get the DARPA funding. They're the ones that put out 50 plus published studies and have 20 plus ongoing studies. They've got the formula down. That's why I like them. You can find them at deltagketones.com. And if you do head there, they've got some discounts as well as free consultations where you can actually sign up for an opportunity to chat with them and figure out how your lifestyle would be best influenced by an exogenous ketone or maybe better said, what protocol would potentially be worth considering for your particular lifestyle versus what you see someone else doing or hear someone say online. Links to both Element Electrolytes and Delta G will be on the show notes as well as the episode landing page. Finally, one thing that I've been doing as I've been preparing for the Havilene 100 mile that's coming up in just a couple of weeks is I've been doing a series of podcasts that just go through all sorts of different strategies when it comes to programming your training and racing. And that series of episodes is getting quite long. So I'm just going to remind you what those episodes are here and I'll have those linked in the show notes as well. For those of you who are either embarking on your endurance journey or would like to maybe just dial things in a bit. The episodes include episode 337, The Long Run Considering the Variables, episode 344, Endurance Training Simplified, episode 346, Short Interval Simplified, episode 348, Long Interval Simplified, episode 352, Proper Aid Station Navigation, episode 356, Easy Run Simplified, episode 363, Mental Training for Endurance, episode 366, Race Course Specific Training, and the most recent one, episode 369, Speed Work Distribution and Double Threshold Sessions. All right, that's all for me. Let's welcome Dr. David Sanger onto the show. All right, David, thanks for joining the show. Hi, thank you. We, we were just chatting a bit off the air about uh, ultra marathons, and I know from experience that you like your 50K events, and uh, yeah. and what do you got coming up? I got the uh, Three Sisters Skyline um, in a couple of weeks up at Sisters in uh, Central Oregon. I live here in Eugene, Oregon, so it's uh, great access to a lot of really good uh, trails and uh, a lot of races around here, so it's great. Yeah, no doubt. Eugene is a mecca of running, so to speak, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> you get it all. Did, right. you, did you make it to, the, to the, the, the championships last year when it was in Eugene? Uh, no, I didn't. It was too, you mean that like the truck and yeah. Championship? yeah, sorry. I should have oh, specified. Yeah. yeah, that's right. No, I, it was too hard to get tickets. It was so hard. I watched it on TV. I was, it was impossible to get tickets. Yeah. It was one of those things where like Nicole and I were talking about, maybe we should make a trip up there and see if we can get some, but it <laughs> sounds like we might have struggled and we decided to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just it crossed my mind after it being uh championships this year in, in Budapest and we we're watching that right. quite a bit and it's a, uh, right. It's just been so interesting to see the just kind of the growth of running in general, but then also with some of the yeah. different events where like specifically like the 1500 meter, I thought was just, just, just getting insane how fast you have to be in that event to even have a yeah. shot at a medal where I was yeah. looking at some of the data and it was suggesting that, cause you got to do three 
rounds of it essentially just to make just to to have a shot at a medal and then in order to be wow. in that position you basically have to be able to run like about like a 335 then a 332 and then if you want a shot at a medal you probably need at least 330 if not dipping under so like, wow. it's just like wow. so fast and uh, a different yeah. different world than what we're doing in ultra marathon for sure <laughs> yeah that's that's right it's totally different yeah well perhaps the, the topic today though maybe is as is equally of a concern for our track and field sure. friends as it is for the ultra marathon folks out there and i it, think so yeah it could be yeah yeah there's been a you know this topic isn't new necessarily i think it's been something that's been sort of like in the conversation or floating around the world of running for quite some time now after we've had some situations where people have literally had a heart attacks on course during marathons and things right. like that. And, uh, right. Right. I mean, there's a lot of speculation early on, I think, as to like what would cause that in, in this, that, and the other thing. But generally speaking, I think as the, as the conversation kind of goes, it's kind of like, is doing endurance sport, at least to the capacity when you get to marathons and perhaps beyond, or in a level of uh, training that would maybe be more suggestive to it, crossing over from hobby to passion, maybe I'll say, right, is it right, like, where, yeah. where's that margin of diminishing returns or is there a margin of diminishing returns when it comes to right, yeah. cardiovascular right. health? And so that's, that's really important. And I get a lot of, um, I mean, it's something I deal with and think about quite a bit. So I'm a, I should say I'm a cardiologist. I don't know if I, I, I should mention that I do do, uh, I'm board certified, um, uh, invasive cardiologist and, uh, I have special training in cardiac CT, so I've done. I, I can read those studies, and uh, I, I practice general cardiology here in Eugene. And uh, I'm very busy. I've been and I've been practicing cardiology for just 20 years now. So, um, or actually 19 and a half years. So, yeah. So I'm I'm pretty busy and have a lot of experience with this issue. Um, so yeah, I guess the quite interesting question is like, uh, first of all, it's important to clarify the, the difference between cardiac arrest and heart attack, like, and then that's often used interchangeably and it's different. So if you see somebody collapse on the field, uh, with a, during a race or something and they're, uh, uh, have no circulation, they need to get CPR and so forth. That's a cardiac arrest, right? And that might or might not be due to a heart attack. And a lot of times when runners or athletes um, collapse and have a cardiac arrest, they have totally normal arteries. It's not due to a artery disease problem. It's due to something else. And there are other other things that come into play that aren't even that rare. There's uh, something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic disease uh, of the heart muscle that is a lot of those people are very good athletes, but they can have electrical instability with their heart and they can um, keel over and die during exercise. It's not, that's actually the most common reason why somebody would just drop dead at a, uh, a track meet or something like that. Um, and that's, uh, so that's a whole different deal. Uh, but I guess what we're talking about is uh, calcium scores and coronary disease, um, which is a, a different topic. So I, um, should, I, should I go ahead and just like explain that or uh, do you want to talk about calcium scores? I can I can explain what they are. Yeah, why don't we do? Let's just continue on with kind of an overview of the difference because you, I mean you kind of got it started with uh, cardiac arrest and yeah. then let's get into some of the other okay, ones sure. so people have a bit of a lay of the land of what it, sure. what the heart health uh, overview I guess maybe. <laughs> sure. 
Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I guess the um, for athletes, I mean, you uh, and for endurance athletes in particular, you uh, you know, there are other rare diseases, but the most common disease to worry about if it's not coronary artery disease is um, uh, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is I mentioned earlier. And then, then if you're thinking about coronary disease, which is probably the next most common reason why an athlete would uh, have a heart attack or cardiac arrest or uh, uh, die during exercise would be doing um, uh, due to coronary disease. Coronary artery disease is what we refer to plaque buildup or blockages in the uh, coronary arteries. Um, uh, these are the arteries that supply blood to the heart muscle. Remember that the heart muscle is a muscle like any other muscle. It needs oxygen. And um, if what supplies oxygen to the heart is these ve blood vessels called the coronary arteries and they can get um, uh, uh, plaque buildup in the arteries, which is uh, complicated what causes plaque. It's probably a mixture of, um, there's something with uh, cholesterol, of course, but then it's not just cholesterol, also blood pressure affects it. And, um, uh, and then what happens is you have an injury to the vessel wall and that uh, causes uh, calcium to respond to the injury. Uh, basically, you have uh, the body tries to heal the injury. And um, when you have that injury or turbulence or disturbance of the inner lining of the blood vessel, which is called the endothelium, when you, when you disturb that, you uh, heal it by laying down calcium. And um, the calcium is kind of the body's way of, uh, of healing a wound. Um, so uh, we look for calcium to see if there's been uh, blood vessel injury or, or damage. I guess that's the best way to say it. So, and calcium is really easy to see just by convenience. Um, the uh, calcium is dense and it's a lot denser than tissue, than, than normal uh, uh, vascular tissue or muscle tissue, which tends to be more like um, uh, very soft and uh, because it's mostly water. So calcium is much harder and picks up on a scan. So that's why we have this thing called a coronary calcium scan. What that is, is basically a fancy x-ray that um, it uses a, a, a CAT scan, but it doesn't actually use the full um, uh, uh, amount of radiation. Uh, and we don't need to use a contrast eye injection. Um, it just uses the scanner to take um, a kind of a quick uh, uh, view to pick up calcium uh, and you can pick it up anywhere in the body. So obviously bones are going to pick up a ton, but uh, if you see calcium in an artery, that means that probably that's plaque or, or, or um, uh, injury to the in, inside of the artery. And you can pick that up anywhere. You can see calcium in the aorta. You can see calcium in, in, the, in the arteries going to the brain. You can see it everywhere. And so if you look at the heart, you can get something called a coronary calcium score. That's the CAC that we hear talked about a lot these days. So calcium score is a basically the um, what you do is you just count the pixels. It's super easy. You're just counting the number of pixels on the um, uh, on the image that are uh, uh, lighting up bright, like because that means they must be calcium. The only thing that lights up bright like that is calcium inside the body. So um, you you count the number of bright pixels, pixels, and that gives you a CAC or calcium score. So a normal calcium score would be zero. You shouldn't have any calcium. It's not supposed to be there. So if you get uh, higher and higher levels, that gives more and more concern that there's been 
vascular injury, uh, that the blood vessel has been damaged and that it's healing and that there might be narrowing of the blood vessel. So that would be, you know, that's what we call plaque um, buildup in the blood vessel. Does that make sense so far? I'm sorry to go on so long. Yeah, no, this is great. I, I have a couple of questions, just maybe, go ahead. Maybe, yeah. maybe points of clarification, if anything. So yeah, yeah, sure, please. when the, the way I'm understanding is optimal is no calcium at all. So Correct. let's say you go and you get a CAC scan and there is calcium there. Is there a different, is, is there like a range of problematic within a certain score? Meaning like, can you have a calcium right. that is more problematic? Like it's looser or right. more firm or how does that? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So then, then once you look at the, so there's different kinds of, okay. So that's the first thing is that yeah, there is a, a gradation. So that you get a score anywhere from zero to, you know, you can go well over a thousand, two thousand. So um, and then you'll get a percentile ranking. If you get your calcium score, they'll give you a percentile, which is based on um, the general population with your uh, uh, ethnic group and your age. And gender, how how much calcium is this relative to other people? So you'll get a percent if you go and get a calcium score. Which, by the way, I think there's no reason everyone shouldn't get one. Uh, one of the problems is that it's often not covered by insurance because it's considered a screening test. So insurance doesn't like to pay for screening tests because you're not technically ill yet. So they uh, you'll have to pay out of pocket, but it's really inexpensive. Like in my community, you can get a calcium score for about 200 bucks. So it's really not a lot of money to get because it doesn't entail much technology and much uh, radiologist reading time. So yeah, so that's the, that's what you get. If you want to go get one, you can, it's easy enough to find somebody who will do a calcium score for you and give you a number. Um, so, uh, and I guess what you're getting at is a higher score is worse, right? So um, scores of over a thousand are probably really significant and indicate a very heavy, what we call very heavy burden of plaque. Um, there's, uh, maybe even over 500 is, is a lot and over a thousand is, is a lot, a lot. Um, it does tend to correlate with age. It should be saying it's also a need to mention that you definitely will get a higher calcium score as you get older. It's kind of part of the wear and tear of being human, right? I mean, as we get older, there's more wear and tear on our blood vessels. The, the blood vessel linings are exposed to uh, cholesterol, exposed to blood pressure, exposed to stress and sheer stress, and um, particularly with exercise, more stress. So that will cause the calcium score to gradually increase with age. Um, I guess the other thing you're mentioning is the whole concept of different kinds of plaque, right? So I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and talk about that. So there's soft plaque and calcified plaque. So you can have plaque and, and to look at that, you need more than a calcium score. So if you want to know if you have soft plaque, which means, uh, so plaque means the buildup of cholesterol and calcium on the inside of the arteries. So once, once it starts, you get a little bit of calcium. And then if you get progression, you get more calcium. And then if you get, um, uh, it's more inflammation, uh, involved in the plaque that's building up in the artery, the, um, the plaque can become more complicated. We say complicated, meaning that it's not just calcium. There's also cholesterol. There's also, um, white blood cells, um, uh, uh, inflammation, inflammatory tissue, fibrotic tissue, there's other stuff in there than calcium. 
and that's what we call a mixed plaque or a, a complex plaque. Or, and then if it gets less calcium and more uh, immune cells and more um, uh, 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 cholesterol, we call that a soft plaque. That's the, you'll hear that talked about. To diagnose that, you really need more imaging than just a calcium score. Because calcium score, remember, is just kind of a very simple thing. It's just counting the calcium pixels. So if you want to know more characteristics of the plaque, then you need to get a, uh, a real, what's called a CT angiogram. So a coronary CT angiogram is a little bit more, uses the same scanner, but what, what that entails is injecting dye. So you're going to be injecting contrast into the vein, and then you're going to give quite a lot more radiation because you have to get high uh, uh, fidelity, really clear pictures of the arteries. So you can actually see down to the very sub-millimeter scale of the blood vessel inside the blood vessel and you can look at the plaque and you can tell is this just purely calcium or is this a mixture of calcium and cholesterol or a mixture of calcium cholesterol and uh, 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 inflammatory tissue or, or what. So that's when you talk about something called a vulnerable plaque. If you heard, I don't know if you've heard that or a high risk, people talk about a high risk plaque or a soft plaque. That, that would be something to be a lot more worried about, right? So a soft plaque or a plaque that is more um, uh, uh, full of other stuff than just calcium tends to be higher risk, tends to be something to be more uh, uh, likely to burst open. So what a heart attack is, I should probably go back and explain. What Usually what a heart attack really is, is uh, caused by one of these soft plaques, one of these um, uh, mixed plaques that's not purely calcium that suddenly bursts open. So what happens is the, the plaque, the, the lining on the plaque ruptures or opens and forms a blood clot. And then you get a blood clot in the artery and that obstructs blood flow to the, in the artery. And that causes, uh, uh, that's, that's what you really want to avoid. That's what a heart attack is. And that's what kills people. That's what, uh, you, I mean, usually that's what you're going to die from when doing exercise is rupture of a soft plaque. And I guess to get back to endurance athletes, this would be something that is less likely if you have a calcified plaque. So calcified plaque is more stable. So that's a, actually, paradoxically, it's kind of a good thing. You want calcified plaque. You want to have plaque that's, if you had to choose between plaque, I mean, you don't want any plaque, it's better to have zero. Mm -hmm. But um, if you're going to have plaque, you want calcified plaque, not soft plaque or non-calcified plaque or mixed plaque. Uh, mixed plaque is a lot more likely to uh, to kill you or to cause a heart attack or et cetera. Does that make sense? Is that explaining it pretty clearly? Yeah. Yeah. No, that does. I think it's, it's just interesting because I think sometimes you'll hear people talking about how they got a CAC score and it's right. zero. Awesome. It's zero, which is good probably. I mean, obviously you'd rather have zero right. than a thousand like you were saying, but if you have right. a zero, but also have a lot of soft, soft, soft plaque, plaque, you could right. be in worse shape right. than someone with a score you could higher. Be, right, right. That's that's a controversial. Yeah, you can. So that's really important. You touched on an interesting topic there. This is an area of controversy. So the studies seem to show that the likelihood of that is pretty low. That you're not that calcium does. If you have a lot of calcified plaque, you're going to have some non-calcified or more high-risk plaque. And they kind of correlate. It's very unlikely, although it is possible, and people talk about this, it is possible that you could have a CAC score of zero and you could have soft plaque and 
could be at risk because of that. Yes, it is possible. And there are a few cases of that, but it's pretty unusual. It's in the less than 10%, probably less than 5% range. I mean, that would be pretty darn unlikely. You shouldn't bet um, on it. <laughs> you shouldn't You shouldn't worry about it. I mean, it's more like, bet, yeah, I mean, I, that's not a, a re, then people say, well, gee, should everybody just get a full CT angiogram? Don't even do a, ca a CAC score. Just get a CT angiogram because that'll, that'll detect soft plaque, right? So maybe you should do that for everybody. But the thing is that a CT angiogram is a lot more expensive. It's more like $1,500. And um, it entails dye injection, right? So you're injecting somebody with contrast dye, which can hurt. You can have complications of that, um, all kinds of complications from injecting somebody with contrast. Plus, there's quite a bit more radiation, uh, which is a whole other thing, radiation exposure. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there are definitely cardiologists out there who say everyone should get a, um, a CT angiogram. I think that's a little aggressive. Um, but I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of what you're, what you're talking about. I think the interesting thing for, for us, for endurance athletes is, you know, do we need to really worry about the elevated CAC scores in endurance athletes? I think, you know, that's what you and I would be worried about. And I can talk about that if you, or do you have any more questions about the CAC scores in general or coronary artery calcifications? No, I think, well, maybe one more actually. So is there any yeah. variance in, let's say we both get CAC scores and we both score a hundred. Yeah. So we've got some there. Is right. there any okay. reason to believe that one person's hundred can be more problematic than another person's hundred? If the, if, assuming soft yeah. plaque is also equal or is it just a hundred yeah. is a hundred? Uh, according to the big studies, it's just the number. So okay. just basically like the higher the number, the worse, the more likely that you're going to have events in the long term, but it's over the really long term. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, these studies show like it's years and years. It's not months or weeks. Um, and that um, more, more calcium is worse, but you know, a calcium score of hundred is pretty modest, right? I mean, a calcium score of a thousand is a lot more important. There are recommendations that if you have a calcium score of over a thousand, you probably should get a full CT angiogram or you should get a stress test or, or something. I mean, there are even some people who say to do an invasive coronary angiogram and somebody who's calcium score of it. So I wouldn't do that. I don't do angiograms on people like that. I just don't, I would base it more on symptoms uh, because I mean, it needs to be said also that all of the studies in cardiology show that just putting a stent in and opening up a blood vessel doesn't necessarily solve a problem if you're not having a heart attack. So, you know, that's really important. Stenting doesn't prevent heart attacks. And I need to get that clarified. You you have a, a, a blockage, it's calcified. Okay, you know, you, you can deal with that, but putting in a stent doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't prevent a heart attack. It doesn't do anything like that. So um, in fact, it might cause more problems. So uh, yeah, I just want to just make sure that's that's clear. More, cal more calcium, more plaque is, is not a good thing, but it's something that you want to treat with uh, with lifestyle, not with going in and doing angiograms and procedures on uh, people just because of their calcium scores. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think the, the issue that comes up for, for us, for ultra runners is, um, is there a, a, a risk of having, I mean, it does correlate, right? So that's the problem is that running in particular puts sheer stresses you know, blood pressure goes up, right? When you're running, I mean, there's, you, you put a blood pressure cuff on somebody on a treadmill, 
their blood pressure is high. I mean, they're, you know, it's not like they have high blood pressure. It's they get high blood pressure during exercise. You'll see blood pressures that normally go up to 180, 190 when they're on a treadmill. And then you take them off the treadmill. I do this every day. And you take them off the treadmill, it goes back down to normal. That, that's that's going to be some strain, some turbulence um, on the uh, that stresses the inner lining of the arteries. I mean, there's no way around that. that that's what's happening. The question is, is that a bad thing, right? Uh, so probably it isn't, although it does correlate with, and because there's so many good things that you get from exercise, mm-hmm. right? There's so many, so many, we all know about all the tremendous benefits that you get from having a, um, uh, uh, endurance exercise and from that whole, the, the, the experience of doing exercise on a regular basis. But then I guess the question is, you know, like what, what's happening to your arteries and the studies show that over time, people who do vigorous exercise at high volume do get higher calcium scores. Um, it does correlate. Now, it doesn't correlate perfectly. That's the problem. It's not like, you know, um, it, there's an exact one-to-one correlation. Um, but it does tend to roughly correlate that you get a higher calcium score with uh, with uh, high volume, long duration endurance exercise. Um, what the interesting, I guess the interesting study that came out recently, uh, earlier this year was the, uh, Mark two study in, um, in the Netherlands. Can I talk about that or, yeah. or do you have any more questions? Okay. So that was a big study that came out that people are, would generated a lot of press was, uh, they took a, a group of about 300, um, athletes in middle-aged white men needs to be said, these are not women. These are all men. And they were all white and they were all in the Netherlands and they were all like started at age 50 and ended at age 60 approximately. Um, and uh, they followed them to look at their CAC scores. So they took CAC scores in one uh, baseline and then again in um, I think it was like five years later and saw the progression, which is about right. About five years is where you'd see any difference. Um, and they found that uh, endurance exercise uh, volume did not, I mean, everybody progressed, right? And you'd expect that there was a, definitely a, a slight increase in calcium score over five years, which is exactly what you'd expect in any study of the general population. Um, but with these, uh, athletes who were doing endurance exercise, the total amount of exercise didn't really correlate with progression. Um, but what did correlate was what they call very vigorous exercise. So very vigorous exercise and they defined that as being, it was a little bit confusing how they defined that, but basically they, they defined that as pretty high workload for a uh, re- significant amount of time. So probably something like, uh, run, and they said greater than nine Mets. So to put that into real, like uh, understandable terms, a Met is a metabolic equivalent. That's how we measure exercise in the physiology lab, right? So you know what a Met is. So more than nine Mets counts as very vigorous exercise in their study. So that's running like beyond a, uh, an easy pace, I guess that would be running at like, you know, uh, uh, maybe a, a intensity level of seven out of 10, something like that, or six, something like that would be, I think would be uh, nine Mets. Um, so that's up there, but it's not like super intense. So that did correlate significantly with plaque progression. So if you take that that study as something to you know take action from, it would say, you know, if you do high, very what they call very vigorous, whatever very vigorous means, uh, very vigorous exercise at a high volume, 
then you're going to have plaque progression probably. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have one question along those lines, and this may yeah. be an unanswerable question just based on like not being able to tease this out, but I'd be curious with something like that sure. where is it like a continuous exposure to nine mets plus or would something where, right. so like, is there a difference say then if I did like a, let's say I did like a lactate threshold field test, which is going to be like, or no, just like a, a race, right. 60 minute race. That's going to probably right. be around that intensity. Is that going to be yeah. worse due to the continuation for those 60 minutes versus if I did say six by 10 minutes with a small break and gave myself a relief from that intensity? Right. Yeah. So that's a really, that's exactly what I was wondering when I'm reading this study. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I'm doing the Zach Bitter 50 K training plan and it, it entails quite a bit of, you know, these, these the long intervals. Yeah. yeah. Right. The long intervals. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. So I, I they didn't study that kind of thing. They don't, I mean, there's just not enough data. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want my opinion, I would say that longer, more exposure to, high blood pressures and shear stress is probably worse um, and probably will increase. But I mean, again, then it comes back to the question of how bad is the calcium score, right? I mean, is it really all that bad or not? I mean, the, the, the thing that needs to be mentioned is that statins increase your calcium score, right? We all know that, that if you put somebody on a statin, the calcium score goes up. And as a cardiologist, we say that's good. That's not bad because what you're doing is you're healing the plaques and the statins are inducing healing. They're inducing um, uh, fibrosis or stabilization. They make plaques more stable. They stabilize plaque. So um, is stabilizing plaque maybe a good thing, right? I mean, um, and then the other question is, who are these people anyway, right? Are you running because you already have some plaque and you're stabilizing your plaque that you already have, right? So, I mean, we don't have the counterfactual. We can't take somebody who, you know, and, and go back and look like, well, what would have happened to your plaque if you hadn't? Ex- I just, I don't know. Um, uh, I think there's just not enough data. I would say that in general, my, my I guess my take home is that, um, you know, longer duration at high intensity is probably putting more stress on your heart. Um, and maybe that's not a great thing over a long period of time. Am I going to change my behavior based on that? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still persuaded that uh, exercise is so beneficial for mental health and for you know, metabolic health and for, you know, so many other things. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say if, it, if, it, if that ought to change your behavior or not. I think you should be aware of it. Um, get a calcium score, um, you know, check your APOB level, um, uh, or your lipid profile or whatever, get, get in, um, get some, you know, labs, talk to, you know, get, get checked, I guess. Um, that would be my, uh, my rough recommendation. That's kind of what I would do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think like, I'm just thinking people listening, thinking like, well, maybe I'll do one last like 10K to half marathon. Per year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I do feel better that like long duration exercise is totally not associated mm-hmm. with, you know, if you're doing uh, like a, a whatever zone two or zone three, mm-hmm. um, even zone three is probably fine. Mm-hmm. So and they said vigorous exercise is not correlated but it's only very vigorous. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and total volume was not correlated. So, and this is the only study that we have that was longitudinal that looked at a group of people at baseline. And those are the same people again, five years later. So that's a really valuable data. We don't have, a, there's only one study that shows that. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I would do, you know, more longer duration, more uh, more ultras at a, at a kind of easy pace and maybe less super intense, like 10Ks, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my take home. But again, I wouldn't worry that much. Yeah. I mean, overall, like the events in these, the number of cardiac events in this population was pretty low, right? These people are not dropping dead. Everybody, we have this emotional response that we, we see an athlete die and we get, it's very emotional. It's very scary. And it, it really uh, uh, makes everybody get excited. But the fact is that the reason why we get excited is because it's so unusual, right? Yeah. I mean, we see somebody who's, who's not an athlete uh, uh, or is, especially if they're, if they have a lot of risk factors for heart disease and they have a heart attack, we say, yeah, well, that's what you expect, right? You know, so nobody blinks an eye, but you see these cases where somebody who's athletic and has a heart attack that really sticks in your mind and it can cause a, I think perhaps a disproportionate response uh, to, uh, to an incident like that. Yeah. You know, it always, when, when this sort of topic comes up to, I always think about, there's a study, I'll have to dig up the link and put it in the show notes and then share it with you if you haven't seen it, where yeah. they actually sure. looked at just like basically like life progression in a group of Olympic track and field athletes. So we're talking, uh-huh. or I should say athletics for our European listeners, but they looked at that. And the cool thing about that study was they looked at a whole, the whole, the whole athletics competition participants. Yeah. So it was like, you had your shot putters, your discus, your javelin, your long jump, high yeah. jump, sprinters, middle distance, long. So you got basically what I would consider like super athletes and people that yeah. are just like, you know, peak physical specimens that we have to offer. Right. And then across right. the spectrum of discipline when you have athletics, because that's what that does. It's basically testing every type of human physical right. type of, uh, you know, so people who are obviously all these individuals at that level are somewhat genetically selected because like you're not going to throw the shot put if you're my size no matter how hard you work at it and you're not going to run the marathon if you're you know if you're someone who's six foot six 300 pounds (laughs) you're going to throw in the shot put in that case so but the cool thing about that is they looked at all these people uh and you know likely quite a bit healthier than the average person and looked at just life expectancy different things that like would potentially happen to them along the way before they died in the longest living ones of that group were the long distance runners. So, um, I right. be, there might've been, I have to double look. There might've been another group in there that was equally as high, like the decathletes or something like that. But you know, that's kind of just a right. smorgasbord of everything at that point. So I would imagine right. they're probably right. in a pretty good spot, but, but it just goes to show you, like if you're running for, let's say you're doing the 1500 through the 10,000 somewhere in there, you're going to be doing long intervals and you're going to be doing short intervals for quite quite amount of that from probably early right. life to whenever right. you retire right. and then maybe to some degree after yeah. you retire. So we're probably right. talking about an exposure to a type of intensity that is both very difficult to actually do because as you know, like on my training plans, there's only so much volume I can prescribe of long intervals right. and then way less right. even yet on short intervals because there's a limiter right. your body puts on you for that. It gets to a point where if I kept exactly. giving you that workout, eventually right. you just wouldn't be able to do it and it wouldn't right. take that long. Right. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, there was another study uh, that similar, like they looked at Swedish uh, 
uh, cross country skiers uh, mm. who were over age 70 and they scanned them. There was like a hundred of them and they scanned them all and they all had very high calcium scores. They had <laughs> calcium scores of like over a thousand, a lot of them, uh, very high prevalence because they were 70 years old, but they were also endurance athletes um, and they were healthy, right? And they're living there. They have very few illnesses, not a whole lot of other medical problems. And sure, maybe it's irrelevant, right? I mean, if you look at people like that, that are doing high volume exercise for endurance exercise for long periods of time, maybe it doesn't matter that they have a high calcium score. Um, I'm not sure. I, I I think I would say I would give one more thought is that uh, uh, if you have a high calcium score, I mean, probably if you're going to do an endurance event, you might take a baby aspirin beforehand. I mean, that does provide some benefit. Uh, uh, aspirin is not necessarily for everybody, certainly not if you're low risk because aspirin can cause bleeding. Um and have uh, side effects for some people. So I'm not telling everybody to take aspirin, but I'm saying that, I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I, you know, I, I if I'm running a, a 50K or, or 100K race, um, I know that I'm going to be putting whatever calcium I've got under some stress and probably won't, nothing's going to happen. But if I rupture one of those plaques, that's what, that's what you want to be avoid, mm -hmm. right? And the one thing that does keep a blood vessel open if it ruptures is aspirin. That's hmm. one thing that, and it's relatively benign. So there's definitely, this is in my idea, there's definitely cardiologists out there who say, well, if you're going to race, if you're going to do something really intense, uh, maybe take a baby aspirin because that does mitigate. What, what exactly happens when you take an aspirin that would make that beneficial? So it's just two things. Uh, number one is that it's anti-inflammatory. Uh, and a lot of these plaques, I mean, it's important to say that Coronary artery disease is, to a large extent, an inflammatory process. Um, it's not just laying down cholesterol and uh, blocking the arteries. There's inflammation involved, uh, which is one of the reasons why exercise is so good, right? Because exercise is kind of anti-inflammatory over the long term. Mm -hmm. And that's why something like smoking is so bad, right? Because smoking is super pro-inflammatory. Um, and that's why a lot of other, if you kind of look at it through that lens, then a lot of coronary disease makes sense, right? Anything that is inflammatory is probably bad for you. So that's why not getting sleep is, is bad for you because it's, it's pro-inflammatory. That's why, um, you know, uh, mental stress is pro-inflammatory. That's why, you know, I can go on and on. Like people show, people, there's studies that show that like just the, you can look at inflammation. That's the whole thing about CRP, right? Remember there was all that studies that came out like a, a few years ago showing that CRP might be more, interesting than cholesterol and more meaningful than cholesterol in predicting coronary disease, right? So what's CRP? CRP is a measure of inflammation. That's all it is. So um, inflammation is maybe that's more important than cholesterol. Um, a lot of people think that. So um, aspirin is, is a good anti-inflammatory and taking just a baby dose is probably all you need. And then the other thing that aspirin does is it probably, I mean, definitely inhibits platelets from sticking together, which makes your blood clot a little bit more slowly, which will, if you're going to have a heart attack, it's not, it, it's not going to form that clot that obstructs the blood flow in the coronary artery. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just for clarification for like a baby aspirin, we're, we're, that's different than other like anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. Totally different. Okay. Right. Yeah. Totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ibuprofen does not have that benefit. Ibuprofen, they've studied that. It doesn't really prevent coronary disease. It is anti-inflammatory, but 
it probably has other bad things that counteract that. Um, it can cause blood pressure to go up. It has other effects we don't even understand completely. So non-steroidals in general, probably not so great. Um, uh, and a low-dose aspirin is probably preventative. But again, just to clarify, it's not for everybody and it does have some risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the risks that would be, that would entail in that? Because obviously it's like anything, you're going to be looking at this through a lens of, I want to lower my overall risk factor. So obviously mm -hmm. when you're making that consideration, someone who decides that they're going to do it or their doctor tells them to do it, it's because the benefits of the, what you just described outweigh whatever those side right. effects would maybe. So what are some of the side effects though? Of aspirin? Aspirin will uh, can cause intestinal bleeding, irritate your stomach. It can cause um, uh, in general, it makes you more prone to bleeding. It can, there's a small, very small risk of, uh, a cerebral hemorrhage, which is terrifying, but that's pretty small, but it could happen. Um, yeah, I think those are the main things that you, you know, I, so I stop aspirin all the time in low risk people. Like if mm -hmm. you're, you know, young and you don't have any, uh, any plaque in your arteries and you're, you're totally healthy, then taking aspirin doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you're, if you're older, especially men, I mean, the studies, again, that over keep showing that women get less benefit from aspirin, might not even get any benefit from aspirin, which is weird. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe it has to do with the fact that women have lower risk in general, uh, but men have get more benefit from aspirin and um, older people get more benefit from aspirin. And if you have plaque in your arteries, you get more benefit from aspirin. So I guess that does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. no, that's great. Thank you. Um, okay, cool. So, I mean, needs to, yeah, I would just mention, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the studies, I mean, we should mention that when I was talking about men versus women, the studies are all mostly in men, uh, and mostly in white men. So I just need to mention that again, we really don't know a lot about other, uh, about women and the benefits and risks and long distance exercise for, I mean, we just don't know as much. There's just not as much data. Um, so, I mean, we have a lot of data on, uh, European men, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it's good and bad. It's good that we have the data. I mean, that, that's where they do the studies. Um, but it's bad that it doesn't, we're still kind of out, you know, we don't know a lot about, uh, women athletes. We don't know a lot about, uh, other ethnicities. Um, so, I mean, if you're in doubt, then see a cardiologist, get, get some more testing, and try to sort it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, a lot of this is sort of like an overview of what could potentially be problematic, but really any data that would be suggestive of it being unique to European men versus women versus other ethnicities right. can be cleared out with right. individuals by looking in and you know taking, taking right. a look at exactly. where everything's yeah. at. So it probably correlates, but you have to be careful not to generalize, not to overgeneralize and be too confident based on, you know, the information that we have, which just isn't that good. Um, I guess that's the bottom line. I mean, I, 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 I take from this again, that, um, exercise does more good than harm, but we should recognize that it probably does a little bit of harm. I mean, you can't, I wouldn't deny that. So uh, am I going to stop running ultras because of this? No, of course not. But uh, it's just good to be aware of it. I guess that's my mm -hmm. point. Um, 
Yeah. Do you know, is there like a general timeline? I mean, there, I'm sure there is. And if you don't have it on the top of your head, that's fine. But I'm just curious, like, I'm guessing they kind of stratify this by age groups where it's like, if you're in your 20s, you should almost certainly have a CAC score of zero. So if a 20 year old goes in and has a CAC score of zero, it's like, okay, yeah. you're just doing what you should be doing versus someone who's like, say, 55, 60, they're going to go in. Right. Is the... I'm right. guessing the expect, expectation there is probably not a CAC score zero, but that's likely fine because they're not expected to live as long at that from that point onward right. as someone who's in their 20s. Right, right. I mean, I wouldn't use age as a rigid cutoff, right? Because I see this all the time. I see 60-year-olds who look like they're 40, mm. and I see 40-year-olds who look like they're 80. Yeah. So uh, it's <laughs> I really do. So I, I just don't know. Um, I think family history also comes into play a lot. Um, if you, if you're a 20 year old, but your dad had a heart attack at age 30, that's a lot more concerning, you know? So, uh, I think family history is important. I think exposure to other risks, right? So I saw the other day, I saw a patient who was 40, but who had smoked throughout his twenties and then quit. So that's, that that person would be significantly higher risk, um, even though they, you know, you know what I mean? They're relatively young. So that would be somebody that I would want to do a, a CAC score, maybe even get a CT angiogram if the CAC score is abnormal in someone like that. Um, so it's, you got to kind of take the nuance of the, uh, of the patient and the individual uh, risk factors um, into play. That's why I think uh, getting more lab testing is good. Uh, getting a, uh, there's something called LP little a. I know Peter Atia talks about it a lot on his podcast and it's super important. LP little a is a uh, genetically determined uh, risk factor. It's a type of uh, it's a, it's a protein that gets attached to LDL cholesterol and um, markedly increases the risk from it. Um, it makes it a lot worse of a, um, uh, of a bad actor, uh, if you have elevated LP little a, um, and, uh, I've been testing it a lot in patients and it's been really, really interesting when you get, uh, elevated LP little a, uh, that's super important. I mean, I have patients when I see somebody in their twenties who comes in with a heart attack, it's almost always cause they have a high LP little a, and I've seen that like a whole bunch of times. Hmm. And, um, so that's important. I think everybody, every, the recommendations are that everybody should get their LP little a tested. Um, it, just once in their life. We don't yet have a therapy for that, um, although it's coming maybe in a year or two. But as of now, there's no treatment for elevated LP little a, but to know about it makes a big difference in terms of knowing your risk. Um, I think of it as like being, um, it's about as bad as smoking. I mean, it's that bad. Um, and um, it, it's kind of like smoking that you can't quit. Yeah, yeah. So if 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 you were a smoker and couldn't quit and had that exposure, I think you ought to know about that. Um that's something that's worth worth finding out. So I think mm -hmm. everybody every everyone should get their LP little a tested. Yeah, and I think just like you mentioned, this is a some this is a situation where these are risk factors. They don't make they're not guarantees, right? So it's one of those things where no, if you have no, a high LP LP no. little a then that yeah. may just be an indication at this point in time, you should probably have all your ducks in a row on the other ways to lower your exactly. risk versus exactly. someone who's lower. They exactly. maybe don't have as much. Right. I mean, they probably should still be mindful of the other risk factors, but maybe they don't right. have as much of an incentive. Right. Exactly. Right. So that's, you, 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 if you're, if you have 
uh, LP little a that's elevated. I had this happen actually just recently. I had a patient who um, I tested her LP little a and it was like super high. And I'm like, you really, really got to quit smoking. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, yeah. You really don't want to combine, you know, there, there's a synergy of risk, right? If you combine high blood pressure and smoking and elevated little, LP little a, you're really guaranteed to have a problem. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Peter Atia and one thing that he said that I thought really kind of summed up the cardiovascular risk, uh, factors and how to think about them was he described as everybody is just imagine yourself being a car and this car has a minimum, like let's say you're in neutral. So you're just coasting. That's the slowest you can possibly yeah. go. And the end, like all these cars are going to the cliff. The cliff is when you die, obviously. <laughs> so right. you can do things along the way that either hits the accelerator or hits the brake on that, that progression yeah. towards that cliff. So like, let's say if someone has high AP little a, they just have a little bit more of a static foot on the gas pedal that they're not going to be able to manipulate. Exactly. So then if they start exactly. smoking, pushing that gas pedal down further, and then exactly. eating a diet that's higher risk and all these other things, then they may yeah. be just pushing exactly. further and further down and getting closer sooner. And that's the way exactly. to maybe think about it, whether you were dealt a poor hand or not. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are tools that we have to, to mitigate risk, right? I mean, um, you know, statins, a lot of people... Uh, they do great with them. Not everyone, of course, there are people that are statin intolerant. But if you can tolerate statins, then they they're they're great. There are other options now. There are a whole bunch of other drugs that have come out in the last ten years that are really uh, effective in lowering uh, the um, uh, ApoB, which is the best way of looking at cholesterol is just the ApoB level. So there's that. There's and then if we're talking about if we're talking about higher risk, usually athletes don't have high blood pressure, but if you're having high blood, I mean, there were some in that study, by the way, that the, 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 the study out of the Netherlands had like, I think 20% of them had high or 15% had high blood pressure. So there are athletes with high blood pressure out there. So if you've got that, then treat, that should be treated. That will lower your risk. Um, right. There's a lot of things you can do to reduce your, get better sleep. I mean, it's super sleep is, I keep thinking about how sleep is super important. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, things that we can do to, uh, to take our foot off that gas pedal, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have a couple questions for you sure. just to kind of get a land. Like I find like a lot of these topics are really interesting because it's one of those things where if you go a layer deep in a certain community, you find things to be very problematic or be like, like the, yeah. the, the, the savior of us all sort of type of mentality. Uh, and then when you go a few layers deep, you kind of find the nuance within it and where the middle ground, I guess, is where it usually ends up falling. So if we look at statins in general, yeah. I mean, I've seen everything yeah. from like, if your doctor recommends a statin, you go find a different doctor, like full stop, like no more consideration <laughs> yeah, I know, to, right? to like, yeah, yeah. we should put statins in the drinking water. Like yeah. what's the deal with statins in general? Like, I, I assume it's yeah. like anything and there's a risk factor there for certain populations, yeah. maybe or things that are going to maybe yeah. be suboptimal with them. But if it's something that's going to prevent yeah. you from dying earlier, you might want to take that. Is there, can you right. just give us an overview of that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So statins will lower your ApoB level. And if the studies over, it's very clear that ApoB is 
atherogenic. So it caught meaning causes plaque to build up. So statins will lower that. And they also, there's studies, numerous studies that show that they induce plaque regression or stabilization so that it takes that, that high risk plaque that we talked about um, and it converts it into a calcified plaque that's more stable, less likely to cause a heart attack. And then there's epidemiologic studies, like meaning like looking at large groups of people over time that show that the ones on the statins have a significantly lower risk of death, heart attack, stroke, et cetera. So there's the data showing benefits of statins is, is just overwhelming. That being said, you know, our other, I mean, not everybody can tolerate statins. I'm one, I can't so far. I mean, I tried and it, I, uh, I had, a, I, I had a full rhabdomyolysis on a run, uh, from, oh, really? uh, so I quit the statin. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing one of your, one of your uh -oh. runs. And it wasn't was my like, fault, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was, no. I guess it was the statin's fault. It wasn't uh, well, my fault. <laughs> yeah, well, right. So yeah, I had been taking the statin for a couple of months and no problem. And then I did like, a uh, low, medium intensity, 90 minute run and was going downhill at a brisk pace. And all of a sudden I had to stop and I was like, oh my, this is unbelievable. Uh, and I went in and got my blood levels checked and my CPK level was like several thousand. Like, I can't remember. It was really high. And uh, so, yeah, well, okay. I stopped the statin, waited like a few days and I was fine. I went back to running. No big deal. I mean, it's not like any major damage was caused. So mm -hmm. I think people get a little too emotional. Um, do I, I mean, people, yes, there's about recognized incidents of about uh, 5% of patients, maybe 10% uh, cannot tolerate statins because of the muscle uh, pain issue. Do statins cause dementia? No, that's not true. That's, um, do statins cause other? No. They, in fact, they probably do good. They do raise blood glucose a tiny bit. So there is that, that whole thing. But is it enough to cause diabetes? Probably not. It raises your blood glucose by about 1% or something like that, according to most studies. So it's really probably not significant. So, um, you know, it's a tool. I would think statins are a tool to use to reduce your risk, but it's not the only tool. There was a big study that came out recently that showed that bempedoic acid, which you might've heard of, it's called Nexlatol, um, came out. That's a drug that came out just about three, four years ago. And it actually did just as well as statins in terms of reducing uh, outcomes and acts on a different pathway. It works higher up on the cholesterol synthesis pathway in the liver. So it blocks the liver from making cholesterol in a different, totally different way and does not cause any muscle problems at all. So you can take bempedoic acid if you don't want to take a statin, uh, probably does the same benefit. There's Zetia, which works on a totally, and that's cheap. That came out like a while ago. It's generic now that works not as well, but it does something. Does it? It's probably beneficial for reducing risk. Um, then there's uh, other options. There's this drug, the PCSK5 inhibitors, which are injectable, which is a little bit of a hurdle for some people, but once every two weeks, you inject yourself with this drug that block. It's a long story of how it works, but basically, it lowers cholesterol more than statins. Very expensive, but it does work, and it's got no side effects, pretty much. Hmm. So there are other options out there. Um, so I always try to work with. When I have a patient who says that they don't want to take a statin, I say, like, you know, let's talk about different options. Also, there's different statins, right? I mean, you can do. A lot of people do. They get away with doing a. Um, uh, a, a lower dose of a more quote milder statin. There are milder ones that are water soluble that leave your body quicker. 
Um, and you can do that. You can do it twice a week or three times a week. I have a lot of patients who take statins three times a week and have no problem. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, ways to skin that cat of getting your ApoB level as low as possible. Um, it's not like, I mean, I also use lower doses. I mean, a lot of doctors I see give way too much high doses of statins, which are a lot higher risk of causing side effects. I some somebody comes into my office on like 80 milligrams of Lipitor. I'm like, Jesus, why, why? there's no image. It's not necessary. Just you can give a low dose and they'll be fine. And the risk is a lot lower. So mm -hmm. is there uh, is, it sounds like this is probably would just be a temporary solution because it sounds like we're we're, we're continually developing this sort of a therapy to a point where eventually we'll have something that has all of, I shouldn't say all, but like it has like so many benefits and the trade-offs are so slow. It'd be silly not to do it type of a scenario. But if someone were to say, have a situation like you did where they were having muscle issues with the statin, but it was by and large, very proactive for their cardiovascular health would you be able mm -hmm. to do like a, could you dose it on like an off season where like you're taking a break from running or maybe you're reducing oh, training wow. and then get some benefit and huh. then phase out of it during your peak training when it would maybe be problematic? That's a clever idea. I've never thought of that. Uh, sure. I mean, you can try it. I mean, there's no, you can definitely do that. You can cycle therapy or you can switch around. Yeah, you could do that. I don't know. I mean, my experience is that if you're going to have, if you have full blown I mean, there's a difference between muscle pain, like just a, a, an ache and pain, and full-blown like lab uh, labs that show muscle injury, mm -hmm. rhabdo. Rhabdo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a little bit more concerning because if you have rhabdo, then you can injure your kidneys. Mm -hmm. You can have other issues that happen from that. So I don't know if I would screw around with it too much if you had rhabdo, but if you just had muscle pain, then um, that's a lot milder, then sure, you can. And there are ways to mitigate that too. Uh, studies show that if you have uh, muscle pain from statins, check your thyroid because that's associated with a higher risk of problems and check your vitamin D level because you have low vitamin D, then that makes it higher risk. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely ways to kind of negotiate around that for sure. Mm -hmm. I did want to touch on one other thing you mentioned and that's ApoB as that has been something yeah. that's come up a lot more as sort of maybe a little bit. I mean, I've seen a bunch of different things. I've seen like, okay, this is the number you really want to test. It's not on a typical lipid profile. So you sort of have to request it. Right. And I've seen other lipidologists right. suggest, yeah, it's a great test to get, but it also correlates so nicely with some of the other stuff that really you can kind of pretty much predict your ApoB with some other stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just talk about like yeah, what- you can. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so so ApoB is the that's what the atherogenic particle. All the atherogenic I would say atherogenic again. I should be careful. Atherogenic means something that causes plaque to build up. So we say the word atherogenic. So all of the atherogenic or bad uh, 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 lipid particles have ApoB attached to them. So HDL is not atherogenic, does not have ApoB attached, but VLDL, IDL, uh, triglycerides, LD, they all have um, ApoB. So if you just look at the ApoB number, that's a lot simpler and easier. Then what you're, what you're referring to is can you just like, just look at the total cholesterol and people do what's called the non-HDL cholesterol. So you take the total cholesterol and subtract HDL and then you're left with all the bad particles. The reason why that's not as good as ApoB is it doesn't account for particle density. Mm. So the fact is that you can have a lot of little dense particles, and that's way worse than 
having um, uh, uh, what's called light, fluffy LDL particles. That's not as bad. So getting the ApoB number tells you the number of particles, which tells you particle density, which tells you more about risk. So when I look at a patient, I really just want to know their ApoB level. Yeah, I'll look at their triglycerides, sure, but it's not, I mean, that tells me something a little bit about their metabolic health, but it's not that interesting. It's not that important in terms of predicting their cardiac risk. Um, if I, I really want to know how dense those lipid particles are, because it's the dense lipid particles that do the damage, right? Mm -hmm. It's the little, they're like little um, baseballs. Somebody once wrote that they're like little baseballs being thrown at a window, <laughs> right? If you throw a lot of baseballs at the window, you're going to break the glass. Um, and the more part, the more of the baseballs you throw, the more likely you're going to break the glass. If you have light, fluffy particles, they're not like baseballs. They're more like uh, uh, fluffy beach, uh, beach balls. balls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're beach balls. They're much less likely to break the glass. If you're um, if you're smoking, you're you're throwing stones mm. now. Uh, they're even denser and they're even worse, right? Um, so does that affect, that's kind of how I think about it. So I just want to know the number of, of baseballs that are being thrown at my window. Yeah, no, me. that makes sense. I just want to know, I, I just want to know my ApoB level and um, I want to get it as low as possible. And however I get it down, statins are the most convenient. And for goodness sake, they've been well studied, right? I mean, statins have been out for like, you know, what, what 40 years now, 30 years. So we know everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly about statins and, um, and they're relatively cheap. They're generic. So, you know, that's, that's your go-to now, but if you can't take it, no big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's some other paths to explore for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So with ApoB, just maybe one step further with that, if someone were to get their ApoB tested, is there like a magic number that you would suggest it should be under this and does yeah. that number, is there like the lower, the better, or is there a point where you said, yeah, going lower than this really doesn't matter anymore? Yeah. So that's great. So, so this seems to show that, I mean, for example, like human babies have ApoB level that is like crazy low. It's like 20 or something <laughs> and they're fine. They, they don't, they, they're, they're very healthy. Uh, they develop normally, their brains grow, they, they do fine. So low ApoB is not bad, right? There's no such thing as too low. Nobody, you, you get your ApoB level down to 20, congratulations, you're the same as a, a human uh, uh, baby and you're fine. So it's not like, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. The problem is that you get into the point of diminishing returns, right? You get, um, you, you start pushing it lower and lower and lower. You start getting side effects of drugs. You start spending money that's not necessary. You get drug interactions, right? Maybe you're taking some other drug and then it interacts with whatever drug you're taking for your cholesterol and that can be a mess. So, um, you know, and then what I, I try to individualize it, like I, like if you have a 90 year old, do you really care that their ApoB is super low? Probably not. It's not going to make a whole lot of difference, but if you have an, a, a 20 or 30 year old with a family history or a calcium score that's positive and they have an ApoB level, that's even a little bit elevated, then you really want to jump on that and you want to make it as low as possible. Cause the idea is you want to lower the air as Peter Atia talked about it at once that you really want to lower the area under the curve, right? You don't want to have high exposure to ApoB over a long period of time. So for younger people, I'm a lot more aggressive. So I want, and if they're lower, like they, you know, somebody like you, like if you came in and, and you're, you're a young guy and you're exercising a lot, you really don't want to be exposed to a high level of ApoB for 
if you're, we're assuming you're going to be alive to age 90 or 100, we don't want to have you exposed to that for a long period of time. So I would want like you to have an ApoB level of less than 50. Okay. For sure. But if you're, but if you're a, uh, if you're a 70 year old and, and you're otherwise pretty healthy, then yeah, I mean, I would go, I mean, the, 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 if you look at the textbooks, they say the normal ApoB is less than 90 and I would tolerate that if somebody's like, you know, lower risk and they're not going to, they're already elderly, then fine. I'd settle for an ApoB level of, uh, of 80 or 90. It's no big deal. That being said, I, I would say this, that I don't abandon the elderly at all. Nobody should do that. I mean, uh, if I have an older patient that's healthy and highly functional, uh, I'm still going to get their uh, ApoB level as low as possible because I don't want them to have a stroke. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, I'm not I'm not saying I want them to be an athlete. I don't I just want them to be healthy. I want to keep them out of the hospital. And um, um, so, sure, I would still treat them. I just might not treat them quite as aggressively. Interesting. You know, that all makes sense. David, this has been awesome. I have learned I've learned learned a bunch and I've had some (laughs) questions kind of along these these topics of like I kind of had an idea of where I thought it was going. But it's always nice to have someone come in and kind of point to show exactly where that is. And yeah, I'm sure the listeners are going to love to hear some of this information and start exploring perhaps. But uh, other than that, I mean, we'll sure. have to have you come back on down the road when you get pulled out of the lottery for Western oh, States and, and go and oh, yeah, sure. experience yeah. that epic Finally. event. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I don't think there are a lot of cardiologists qualifying for Western States, so kind of an odd odd breed there yeah yeah no you'll you'll be i'm sure one of few if any so that'll be that'll be fun uh awesome david do you want to share with the listeners where they can find you are you on the internet anywhere social I'm media on the, i'm on the yeah i do uh social media i'm on um twitter and uh uh threads and uh uh facebook and um uh, i see patients and uh I love to see endurance athletes uh, or ultra runners. I have a few of them that have come in and that's really fun. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to see people who aren't even sick. I mean, I'm happy to talk about like risk reduction instead of just illness. That's always a fun change for me. Yeah. And you're up in Eugene. In Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. Cool. And does your, does your business do only in-person stuff or do you have any sort of online type of stuff that people can access? Oh, wow. Uh, at present, no, I'm, it's not my business. I'm employed by a big hospital. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Health. It's a big, it's a big, um, uh, uh, health system here in uh, the Pacific Northwest. So I, I work for them, but I see patients and I, you can find me online and, uh, go through that way. But, um, no, I don't do remote stuff now that COVID has kind of died down. I don't do that right at presently, but I could think about it in the future. It's a good idea. I'm just imagining all these ultra runners looking for your consultation. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. No, uh, no, David, it's been great to have you on. Thanks a bunch for uh, giving me some of your time sure. today and have a great of rest of the day. Well, thank you very much. Excellent. Thanks. All right, everyone, if you're still here, you're sticking around to hear about how I use the show sponsor Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. For Element, they make an electrolyte supplement. So what I know about me is that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid loss. So what that means is if I go out for a run and I lose two liters of sweat, then I'm also going to lose roughly 
1,228 milligrams of electrolytes with it, which ironically happens to be about one packet of element. So what I likely will do is if I'm going out for a longer training session or I'm going to be out in the heat and sweating a lot, I'm going to supplement the fluid intake I have with electrolyte to make sure I have that stuff in balance. The way this usually looks for me is I'll wake up in the morning and I'll have a cup of coffee and I'll put half of one of those packets in with my coffee. It will be one of their chocolate flavors though because it's coffee after all. I'm not going to stick one of the fruity flavors in there. So that gets me kicked off. Then what happens is I go out for the workout and then I am drinking basically to thirst, but I am also targeting some numbers at times when it's hot enough and I know what my sweat loss is. But generally speaking, for every liter of fluid I'm taking in, I'm matching that with 614 milligrams of electrolytes to make sure I'm staying on top of that and remaining hydrated throughout that training session. If you're interested in a deep dive and figuring out more about your fluid loss and electrolyte needs, I actually have a couple podcast episodes that might be interesting to you. One is episode 358 with Andy Blow, where I go over all things hydration. And he talks about how I came up with that 614 milligram loss number and how you can maybe find out about yours as well as how much fluid you are losing with some simple at-home tests. Also, I did an episode a while back, episode 300, which is just titled Personalizing Workout Hydration. So check out both of those if you're interested in doing a deep dive into your hydration and electrolyte needs. Something new I added to my training and racing this year are exogenous ketones. The research for exogenous ketones is still in its early stages, but there is a lot coming out and it is getting more convincing in my opinion to the degree where I wanted to try it out. I actually stress tested it during a 15 hour, 100 mile run at the Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year as a way to confirm whether it was something I was gonna include in my racing protocol. One thing I was a little nervous about with exogenous ketones, like I am with anything I'm ingesting during an ultramarathon, is what is it gonna to do to digestion. I was interested in the recovery research for some time now with exogenous ketones, and there are some newer research studies now that suggest it could also have some performance applications as well, if you're able to tolerate it and get it in the right dose. So when I decided to try it out, I went with Delta G ketones because they are the ketone ester that basically all the research that has promising effects is tied to, and it's their formula that's being used in those research studies. So a lot of times you'll just go and look for an exogenous ketone, and there's all sorts of potential issues with that, whether it's a dosage or just the incorrect type, and it's not actually gonna do what the research suggests it would do. So to me, it was looking at if I want to potentially get the benefits that these could be bringing, I need to be using the one that they're actually showing the research with. So that was Delta G ketones. They actually received the DARPA funding and grant to actually put together that form. So like I said in the, the intro message, they have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with this right now, and this is something where I am evolving as I kind of do more with it, but at the moment, I'll do a bottle of their ketone performance, Delta G performance, and that is their little blue bottle. So I'll take one of those about 20 minutes before a big key training session, and that's it. If it's a race day though, I'll do that same protocol, but I will take another bottle about every three hours after that. So if I'm doing something that's longer duration, like that 15 hour Rocky Raccoon effort I've just described, I would be doing that again at three, six, nine, and 12 during that particular performance. 
So like I said in the intro, if you want to chat with one of their experts, you can actually go to deltagketones.com and they have a consultation service there right now where they will help you understand the research and whether your lifestyle is even something that they would, they would be worth considering it for. So if you want to get a little more information on that, that option is available to you. Links to both Delta G ketones and element electrolytes can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 